Join Dr. Anthony Fauci and your colleagues in respiratory medicine at the ATS 2021 International Conference starting May 14th. Register today at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I am a medical educator at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And today we will be discussing social media in pulmonary and critical care training programs. And we are lucky to have two guests sitting down with us today. Today I have with me Dr. Sheetal Gandotra. Uh, she's an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And we'll be discussing her article, Understanding the Social in Social Media, an analysis of Twitter engagement of pulmonary and critical care fellowship programs. And we also have with us today, Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, an assistant professor and associate program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the University of California in San Francisco. We'll be talking about her perspective piece in ATS Scholar called Tips and Traps for Trainees Traversing Social Media. So thank you both for being with us today and taking on this uh, dynamic and very timely topic of social media and how it interfaces with our field and medical education. Thanks for having us. Sheetal, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your study, just how, how you were motivated to look into this and um, what did you find, like major takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. So our study actually goes back quite a while. It was developed back in 2018 as part of um, a working group for the ATS section of medical education. And, you know, we had noticed that social media use has become increasingly popular amongst fellowship programs and medical educators, but really there was very little data available to tell us how programs were presenting themselves or using social media, particularly for medical education. Um, and so that's kind of what we started with. And so we decided to look at program presence. So fellowship program presence on Twitter, as well as Instagram um, back in the original version of the study. And so we actually searched for every single program that's on ERAS by hospital name, fellowship name, and you know variants of their names to try and identify programs that, that had accounts um, and then characterized each of their posts, their tweets, tweets or posts as it was relevant um, as either being a clinical, a social or a med-ed related post. And we looked to identify really um, what these programs were posting, what contributed to enhancing followership um, and then you know, what sorts of engagement they were able to generate with uh, their activities on, on social media. And so we noticed actually that very few programs were present on Twitter. There were only two programs that had Instagram accounts. So there was very little we could actually say about those. Um, but of a total of 341 programs that comprised of combined palm crit programs, adult critical care medicine programs, as well as the pediatric critical care and pediatric pulmonary programs, there were only 33 total that had Twitter accounts with about 10%. Um, and the vast majority of posting was actually um, 
clinical posts and then social posts, meta-related posts were actually the least common. We found that higher engagement um, occurred with clinical and social posts, but it seems like Twitter posting for fellowship programs in the meta arena has not quite gained the popularity or engagement of clinical and social media uh, and social posts, at least at the time of our data collection. And do you think that there has been anything much that has changed then since 2018 to now where we're speaking in 2021? Absolutely think so. I think just from being on Twitter, it would certainly seem like there is an increased presence of fellowship programs, certainly of um, trainees and medical educators in um, on Twitter, but it's hard to know exactly what the difference has been. I think certainly one arena in which we see this is virtual recruitment. And so I think, you know, as someone who does a lot of work with our pulmonary critical care fellowship um, and a new critical care medicine fellowship that will start this coming July, um, we had an opportunity to really think about our strategy for virtual recruitment and using our um, divisional Twitter account to help generate some interest as well as give people a sense of our culture when they weren't going to be able to visit. And we certainly saw that, I think, from other fellowship programs and I don't know if you guys want to comment on um, what your programs were doing as well. Yeah, Lakshmi, what what have you seen? Um, how do, how have you seen social media being incorporated into how fellowship programs used, just sort of anecdotally? It's a really good question, and I loved your study, Dr. Gandotra. Thank you so much for publishing it. I would say that some programs are really good about having a branded fellowship program account that where you know a point person or a team of people kind of runs the account and posts a combination of digital content or that social or medical pearls or combination. And I think some other programs have a number of active users or even super users who kind of are viewed informally as program representatives who shout out or amplify uh, you know, faculty, fellows and trainee research, things like that. So I think I've seen a, a combination of those kind of phenotypes where there's more formal program posting or where there's programs where there's a couple of active kind of super users that tend to amplify programs uh, acting in a similar capacity. And did you, how did you all end up using social media in your recruitment? So we actually, one of, the, one of the interesting things we saw some other programs do and we chose to do as well is have our fellows post a day in the life of on each of our rotations. So we have some fellows that are you know, engaged on Twitter and then we actually have some that are not on Twitter and um, several of them also chose to create sort of a series of tweets throughout the day with pictures, um, everything from you know waking up in their morning routine prior to heading into the medical ICU to things that happen throughout the day. Um, and then their sort of wind down routine before going to bed. And I think that that certainly was one of the highlights for me about how we've used our account to try and give those who are applying to us and looking at us for a fellowship, just a sense of what it looks like to be here and to be a first year fellow in particular. That is really cool. And you've definitely given me some good ideas for recruitment next year. <laughs> I would say that. Yeah, I love that you made it very real, like um, truly like a true day in the life, not strictly what's limited to what an ICU at UAB looks like. Definitely. And I think, you know, for us, uh, we used our program website a little bit more heavily and have posted a lot of videos on our program website. 
exact, exactly as you said, acknowledging the limitations of virtual recruitment, but also the benefits that instead of you having to be paired with one tour guide on that day, instead in a video, we can showcase a really diverse array of voices from our faculty and our fellows. So I think our program put a lot of energy into our program website. And in our program social media, we tend to rely on our social media super users, but not as much of a deliberate um, day in the life of strategy. But hey, that's a great idea for next year. Yeah, I think here our, uh, our fellows uh, did a good job of hiding, highlighting individuals uh, and the sort of diversity of people and interests that exist within the fellowship, both at the fellow level and at the faculty level. And also showing that sort of human side, like pictures of their kids, pictures of their dogs, pictures of spots that they like to go to around town, things like that. So I think there's a lot of variety and, and it sort of gives you that extra dimension that um, I think was really lost in the digital recruitment space, like as opposed to being able to actually like visit a place and go to dinner with people and connect with people on a human level. Um, I know that that was really, absent for the applicants this past cycle. So it was an attempt to, to touch on that. So that maybe gets a little bit at the social piece um, as you, you know, sort of put your buckets in, you saying social clinical versus medical education. Um, and it, it sounds like the social and the clinical were the two buckets that probably had the most activity, at least in 2018. Um, and so one point that Lakshmi, you bring up in your perspective piece is um, the concept of protecting patient privacy while also transmitting pearls of, of clinical wisdom or learning that happened there. Can you say a little bit more about that? Thanks so much for that question. I think this is important now more than ever when many people on social media, many physicians and healthcare professionals on social media are actually followed by patients in the COVID era. So patient engagement is really high. Patients are reading what you post and tweet. And I don't think that should discourage you from sharing. I think you can still share in a very safe, protected way that's being very sensitive to patient privacy. So Dr. A.O. Glasser, who gives a lot of talks on this topic, has a saying saying, post the pearl, not the patient. And what she means by that is that you can really distill out the educational teaching point while still maintaining your patient's privacy. I think that making sure that the pearls are delivered in a time and space that's distant from the actual patient interaction is important. I think keeping it as de-identified as possible, changing key details, because again, you don't want any family member to read your tweet and to say, gosh, she's obviously talking about my family member in that vignette. Um, that should never happen. And if it, there's a picture or an ultrasound clip that's posted, always make sure to get patients consent and privacy before posting that. Even if I tweet, say, about a conversation that I have with a patient, I think one of my tweets recently about vaccine uh, vaccines, I asked my patient specifically, gosh, that was such a profound insight. Do you mind if I share that on social media? Or so, recently, just last night, I shared a, a, a conversation that I had with one of my trainees. And I asked that training, is it okay if I share my reflections on this conversation? So I think there's a lot of ways to share and disseminate clinical pearls, communication pearls, uh, while sharing and protecting, while protecting very deliberately and thoughtfully our patients' privacy, as well as that of our training. Yeah, thank you for that, um, that tip. 
I think, uh, yeah, social media, it, it's very easy for it to become sort of like a knee-jerk way for us to connect with people and verbalize our experiences. But I think you make a good point to like sort of pause and think about the safety of the individuals that may be involved, whether it's trainees, patients, um, collaborators, or, or um, other, other physicians or healthcare, um, healthcare providers or clinicians around us as well. I think um, that pause is critical, just as you said. Mm -hmm. And what I recommend too, is if you type something out and you have a, you have that spidey sense that maybe this is not going to be received well, uh, in, I encourage you to share that draft actually with a friend, colleague, or mentor to say, does this sound okay? Is my intent coming out okay? Because again, remember that your intent and your impact can be different. So cross-checking with a trusted friend, colleague, mentor, family member would be important if you feel that spidey sense that, hmm, this may not be the right thing to do. Because as we all know, there's no edit button yet. <laughs> I loved that you actually commented. Um, to always think about whether you would want what you're tweeting to, you know, whether you would be okay with it being on the front page of the New York Times. And I think that really is a good pause moment, um, especially if you're sort of, you know, in the moment trying to respond to tweets. I think that's a great thing to remember. Yeah, there's an interesting tension, I think, um, between that, which I think is like this critical pause. And also, I think you mentioned like this danger of imposter syndrome sort of playing in and maybe actually um, suppressing people like self suppressing or maybe like not being followed by others like their voices. Um, so, you know, how do you how, how do you think or how would you encourage, say, like a trainee or a junior faculty member to balance that piece of it as well. It's a really good point that you've raised about this tension where first and foremost, I really think that our voices matter. Your voice matters and you have something important to say. One of the reasons that I was excited about writing this piece is when I was a chief resident, I ran our, uh, and started and ran our UCSF IM Chiefs, uh, Chief Set Moffat Twitter account and had a great time doing it, posting learning pearls, posting pictures, the residents having fun. And after that, I stopped posting when I became a pulmonary fellow. And I remember meeting up with a mentor who's in geriatrics, Dr. Eric Wadera, who's a very active social media user who runs a blog, a podcast, Jerry Powell, and posts uh, copiously on Twitter. And I ran into him and he said, how come you don't tweet anymore? He asked me and he said, I had told him about an advocacy experience I had on Hill Day with a colleague from ATS, Dr. Shiva Srinivas, and told, her, he told him, this is a great experience that I had on Hill Day advocating for our patients' lung health. And he said, you have to tweet about that. And I said, I, had, I did it during my chief year, but now I have nothing to say. I remember this conversation very deliberately. And he said, that's not true. You have a lot to say. You have a lot to share. Please sign back on Twitter. And that day itself, I thought, you know what? I actually do have something to say. And I reactivated my dormant account um, and the, the rest is history. So I think that this piece really shows you that yes, there's a lot of fears that you might have about imposter syndrome, quote, getting it wrong, you know, inadvertently offending somebody. There's a lot of fear about that. And I hope that this piece gives few concrete tips 
of how to actually find your voice, amplify your voice, and make it a fun and educational learning experience that's great for networking, that's great for your own education, great for keeping up with the literature, meeting colleagues from around the world, and our own wellness and catharsis. So it really has so many useful benefits that I think all of our trainees would benefit from. And if you cautiously navigate these traps, you know, you can get a lot out of it. So I definitely think it's worth pursuing. Yeah, Sheetal, have you had to sort of navigate that tension yourself? I do. I absolutely um, would characterize myself as a cautious poster, largely for the reasons that Lakshmi described. Um, and I think, you know, the tips that are provided by Dr. Santosh and colleagues in, in the perspective paper are really helpful. Um, when I joined Twitter, it was because my then mentor, Clark Files, during fellowship, um, and I were having a conversation about how he was always so up to date on the literature. And I always felt like no matter how, you know, recently I had done my literature search, anything I submitted to him for review came back with new publications and new, you know, references he wanted me to add. And I just couldn't figure out how he kept up. Like I thought I did a pretty good job of being up to date. Um, and I think Twitter can certainly do that for you. I think it's a great venue for being able to engage in conversation with thought leaders. And so that was, that was my reason for joining. Um, and I think over time, I've become more comfortable with having a voice in advocacy and having, um, you know, something to say myself, but I still very cautiously post and largely because I think of that sort of, you know, lack of an erase button and lack of an edit button. And so I will very much so, much like these day in the life of post, create my content in advance, review it, and then post it. I'm much better with structured engagement. So when I've been part of Twitter chats and things like that, where I can sort of have cohesive thoughts built up. So I think everybody sort of finds their own niche. And um, and I think it's important to have a purpose for what you're doing with your social media accounts, um, both for programs like fellowship programs, but also for individuals and then, you know, sort of having goals for what you want out of these as well. That's um, very that's well said. Point. Yeah, I think Dr. Kimberly Manning uh, at Grady Doctor, who is, of course, a huge Twitter celebrity and a fantastic clinician. She talks about that, having your social media mission statement. And her pearl really resonates with me. Uh, I think that some of the things that I try to do with my own engagement is amplify the voices of, of course, our trainees, our fellows, our faculty member, uh, their research, their advocacy. And also I, I love to post on topics related to women in medicine or folks who are underrepresented in medicine. And also I like to post a little bit about vulnerability, keeping it real, again, related to my experience with, with being a parent in medicine, especially because of the gender differences in the, our field in pulmonary critical care medicine, which has been a largely male-dominated field. So just like movements like hashtag, I look like a surgeon, I think it's important for, for my voice as a young woman, um, young mom to talk about, you know, how, how you balance all the different things that are going on in life. And so that's kind of my personal mission statement is amplifying others, keeping it real and you know 
hashtag I look like an intensivist. That is type of it's how I consider my personal mission statement when I use social media. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway from this for all of our listeners that sort of thinking about what your mission statement would be. I think that would be like one of the best um, ways to to operationalize some of some of what uh, both of you wrote about. Um, and also, if you're contributing to a fellowship program or divisional Twitter account, I think it it especially makes even more sense for there to be sort of purpose there uh, identified up front so they can sort of stay on message. Um, I think that that's a really great point. And that being said, how do you avoid the echo chamber that people talk about then? So we're, you know, we're doing our best to amplify the voices around us, of our trainees, of the people that we sort of most relate to, whose tweets resonate with us, we're going to retweet it. Um, but then how do we not like just further isolate ourselves? I, I would say that I've learned a lot, uh, especially during COVID, from actually reading posts from patients, patient advocates, nurses, journalists. I try to follow a diverse array of voices, including and especially non-physician voices. I try to ensure that I'm following um, people of color, particularly Black voices, to make sure that we're not in our own echo chamber and to ensure that I'm getting the perspectives, diverse perspectives on my timeline. But it's really hard to, to not just see tweets from your Twitter friends or people whose viewpoints you agree with. Um, I think those are some strategies of just being deliberate and ensuring diverse voice. I would agree. I think that's one of the hardest things because even, um, even with my initial sort of foray into this, I really wanted to keep it to a very cultivated feed, right? Just thought leaders and sort of a manageable amount of information, but very quickly you realize that that becomes limiting. And so um, I, I agree with you know, what you guys have said. I think you have to do this consciously. I think you do have to make sure that you look every so often at who you're following and who you're not following and who's muted and who's not muted to try and figure out, um, you know, do you really have all of the representative voices and is there anybody else that you need to be adding to that so um, I think this was in the perspective paper as well just trying to make sure that you periodically do this and so I thought that was a great tip when I was reading that mm, you have to tend your garden <laughs> yes we Absolutely. give a link to this spring. website called proportion it's you know it's a funny link purport proportional basically is the website proportion.onl and that actually will show you the gender distribution of your followers and the people you follow, which is really interesting. So uh, it can be surprising. I encourage people listening to check it out. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good place to practice sort of um, surrounding ourselves with voices and faces that are different than our own or different than the, the predominating voices in our field as well. Um, so sort of uh, similar to that or like on a similar thread, do the two of you think of social media as a form of peer review in a way? I know we think about social media as this place where it's like democratizing everyone's voices, right? A, someone who's super junior could be even more sort of popular in social media compared to like a more senior expert, depending on what they're doing and how they're engaging with folks. Um, but, you know, how do you approach that? How do you vet different 
voices that you're finding there? How do you value and, and choose who you follow? I think that's a great question. Um, I don't think I generally, and I thought about this uh, as you were asking this, but I don't generally think of Twitter as a peer reviewed forum. I think it's a public review forum. Um, and I think you certainly get reviewed good or bad, right? For anything that goes up there. But I'm not sure that just using that as a peer reviewed forum would be adequate. I really liked um, some of the tips that were provided for trainees um, in the perspective paper that really talked about looking at who you're reading and looking to see what their area of expertise is. And some you know, people on Twitter do this quite well. They will reference what they're posting. They will share their expertise. And of course, it makes it much easier to um, verify that when it's already shared for you. I think that's one of the reasons it does behoove us to have accounts that identify us as physicians, for example, um, so that when we are posting, there's some evidence of where we're coming from with our data and, our, uh, and, uh, and separating out when you're presenting something as opinion versus evidence, I think is really important as well. And so as a user of that you know, information, you also then have to look for these things. So true. Very well said. And I agree completely. I think that Twitter is not peer reviewed, right? And the danger is when people take, as they say, my tweets are not medical advice, right? So the danger is when people take what they learned on, quote, learned on Twitter and perhaps misapply it. And I think we've seen this a lot in COVID where early in the pandemic, people said, it seems like on Twitter, people are you know, avoiding intubating these patients or intubating early. And as we know, that pendulum has swung back and forth a couple of times. And uh, I think our, at least our institution's approach has been, let's stick with what's evidence-based for now, which is treating ARDS at, with evidence-based ARDS therapies. But I've seen and heard of a lot of people who said, you know, this is what I heard on social media, doctors are talking about this, let's try this. And I caution people, of taking tweets as medical advice do not because it's not peer reviewed. However, what I like about it is that you can get kind of the pulse of the community, kind of the quick reaction of the community very quickly. For example, when we saw that uh, nature paper about women mentors and med, med Twitter was appropriately outraged and multiple before people were pointing out the flaws in this study and it was ultimately and quickly retracted. So I think it's a nice form of where sometimes things may escape even the formal peer review process or the infamous JAMA podcast. You know, quickly you have a public forum where we have said, this was not detected on peer review. This is clearly biased and this needs to be retracted or removed. So even though Twitter is not peer reviewed. It does offer a valuable um, gut check and uh, bias check and community check where we can quickly identify things that were not sadly sometimes detected on peer review that are problematic, particularly when it comes to topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also in medical errors. You know, I've seen people find statistical errors on in on Twitter, users finding out statistical errors as well. And so I think it is a great kind of post-peer review process, sometimes identifying things that should have been peer, picked up in peer review. 
but I definitely caution people towards taking this medical advice. And I appreciate Dr. Gendotra's reference to the part in the perspective piece that talks about, you know, considering the ethos and the ethos refers to who is the author of the piece? What is their expertise? What is their credibility or lack thereof? And, you know, we gave that classic example of Tesla's Elon Musk talking about PEEP and ventilators and, <laughs> uh, you know, having no expertise in this matter, but many well-regarded experts in our field did similar things early on the COVID pandemic as well. And so thinking about the ethos, where are they coming from? What is their background? What are their conflicts of interest disclosed and undisclosed? Those are valuable things to think about when you are both the consumer of information as well as when you're the uh, author of information. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a great segue into um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, you mentioned ethos, but you also talk about logos, pathos, and kairos, as well as Bloom's taxonomy as different frameworks to use um, for navigating social media. So can you demystify some of this language for our listeners? Definitely. And uh, we're going to take it away from the Greek and to the modern era of Twitter. And so ethos, like I mentioned, is talking about what is the credibility of the expert. And this is related to Aristotle's rules of logic. That's where this framework comes from. Logos really talks about how are you making your argument? Is it rooted in logic, evidence, science, and structure? I think Dr. Gendotra pointed out, uh, it's even better if you can cite articles that add to your point of view. I think that enriches or strengthens your point of view when you're creating a persuasive post, when you're laying out your, your case, almost like, a almost like a lawyer defending your case to the judge of social media. The more evidence you can bring with you, the better whether that evidence is a peer-reviewed publication or you could say in my personal experience, but then clearly label it as such, right? Pathos is your passion, the emotion. And I think, again, uh, it's fine if you want to just initially be just a consumer or retweet and amplify. If you're authoring your own content, thinking about sharing your emotions, it can be useful when making an effective argument. Again, just as imagining that lawyer bringing their case to the journey. And again, when you're passionate in pathos, make sure again to keep patient confidentiality as the utmost supreme value that we all have to guard and not to compromise. And then Kairos is this concept of really timeliness. What is the opportune time, or in some cases, miss opportune time to talk about something? in a social media discussion. So we talk in the piece about layering that Aristotle logic um, argument that I've outlined to the Bloom's taxonomy of social media, which was really well done and published in academic medicine by this team of authors, including you know, Dr. Schlasser, Dr. Ray, many other colleagues, Dr. Jaffe, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Chapman, talked about applying Bloom's taxonomy to social media engagement. So they talk about, you know, the easiest thing you can do is consume content, read other people's tweets, then it's promoting content. So amplifying, retweeting, then it's kind of discussing, engaging in Twitter threads. And then at the apex of that pyramid is creating your content. So we talk about how you combine that framework to really think about ethos, logos, pathos, and kairos to think about, uh, all the way from consuming to creating content, how do you apply those principles that we talked about? Thoughtfully? I think that helps with um, 
clarifying all the different levels of engagement with social media, because I think it can be overwhelming and it can seem like, oh, there are these sort of Twitter celebrities out there who have it all figured out. And, you know, how are they deciding when to put this on there? And when are they posting this other thing? And how are they knowing who to amplify? And, you know, so I think you, you two are sort of Twitter celebrities. So <laughs> can you hardly, hardly. us? <laughs> Can you share with us, with our listeners, um, about how you, how has social media um, enhanced your professional network? And more specifically, how do you even make time to engage with it without it becoming a black hole? I always wonder, you know, I'm busy rounding in the ICU all day. Like, how are my colleagues in other places like finding time to like make these amazing threads that all I can do is retweet? I think that's an excellent question. Um, and I think it also varies with what your purpose is, right? So when I was responsible for virtual recruitment strategies on social media, it was sort of at the forefront of my mind. And I was trying to make sure that I'd, you know, gotten our fellows to get their threads together and post. And so I was very much so, you know, setting aside time each day, 20, 30 minutes each day to look at what other programs are doing, what we want to do, and sort of creating that content. Um, and then, you know, posting it with some sort of cadence because that's been shown to improve your follow followership as well. And so I think that's the most structured that I've been when I've really, when it's been part of what I need to accomplish. Um, I think, you know, you very rightfully allude to the fact that it can take over and it can very much so become a time sink. And so I think you do have to be wary of that. And and I personally, I think I felt that at the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, there's this sort of drive to learn about everything and learn about what everyone else is doing and try and make sure you're ready when things are coming your way. And so I was spending far too much time on there and it also becomes emotionally draining. And so I think now what I tend to do is if I have time or if I'm taking a break, I'll set aside 10 or 20 minutes for what I wish to peruse or read. Um, and then if there are specific things that I'm interested in, like excellent tutorials, for example, I'll often bookmark them so that I can go back to them when I'm doing something that's related to that. Those are sort of my strategies, but I'm sure Dr. Santhosh may have some as well. I love those tips. And again, I'm learning from you during this discussion as well. I'm a big fan of bookmarking things to read for later, especially good articles or things that I might reference in future talks that I wanna give. So bookmarking is a key way to keep it organized. A lot of people aren't even aware of that function. So definitely encourage people to bookmark things to keep them organized. I, I think it's very well said that it goes back to your mission statement and your purpose. If this is going to be a way to keep up with the literature, that is totally okay to be more in the consuming mode. And again, the things that you would have to pay more attention to then is considering the author, making sure you're following a diverse variety of, variety of voices, et cetera. If you're in charge of a program social media account and their recruitment, that's a very different strategy. And I think setting aside some protected time at a regular interview is a very thoughtful way to do it. If it's your, for me at our medical center, our elevators take a really long time to come. So for me, I'm often scrolling my feed as I'm waiting for the elevator and 
learning as I'm doing that. So I try, I, I agree it can quickly become a black hole where you spend a lot of time. And so I think linking it back to your purpose where, you know, this is the time where I'm using it to relax and catch up on the medical literature, or this is the time where I'm trying to make my program look good, make my fellows and faculty look good. And that's okay where it will flex in and out of your life depending on what you're using it for. And so the time commitment again will vary. Uh, for what you're using it for. So for me, it's it's a big part of my elevator time where I use it to relax and catch up on the literature, see what see what my Twitter friends are up to, amplify their great research and things like that. And then if I really want to make a point about something, that's when I'm sitting down to really put my quote pen to paper and then I'll sit on it, vet it with a shared friend or colleague before posting it. Mm, what a good, those are great recommendations from both of you about how to um, how to use social media sort of to its fullest potential and have it um, actually promote what it is that we're trying to do both in our careers and in our training and what we're learning and, you know, just using it as a as an instrument uh, and not just falling into the scrolling mentality, which I think is the danger of, or one of the, one of the dangers of social media. Um, thank you for that. I think those are really excellent tips. And then, you know, just to reference back to, um, to Sheetal's article, the third bucket after social and, um, and clinical was, was education or med ed. So how have the two of you um, engaged with med Twitter, so to speak, or met, you know, hashtag med ed, or how have you been tying your social media presence or consumption in with education explicitly? I think one of the ways that, you know, I've tried to do this is certainly sharing content through like educational tutorials that I will see and catch. Um, we have tried to generate some here through our program as well. Uh, and I think that can be very helpful. Um, I think really one of the ways that, you know, we as a group started to do this with my co-authors was look at how programs were doing this. And, and certainly this is an area that is fraught for additional research. Like there's just so much to learn about how we're using Twitter to contribute to medical education and, and what trainees want from social media and how they find it valuable. Cause I think that's one of the things we were not able to get at, right? Like this was just us looking at accounts and, and existing posts, but we have no idea what people were actually trying to achieve with their, their tweets. And so I think that's a key question, right? Like do, do programs think that they are contributing to medical education with what's currently out there? And are there actual strategies that are being used to share either, um, you know, educational best practices? How did programs use Twitter, for example, or other social media platforms during all of the virtual education that we've done this year? Um, and I think there's so many questions that could be asked. I definitely don't think that we've maximized the potential for using uh, Twitter or other social media platforms for that matter for medical education. I agree. And when I read Dr. Gendersha's paper, immediately I got excited for her future work. You know, I, I totally agree that going back to what do people want from this? What do the learners want? Uh, do they want it to be a, a place chock full of de-identified clinical pearls? 
or a place to catch up on the latest evidence or a social networking platform or D all of the above. I think it is probably different for different people. And so having a mix of that kind of content is important if you're say in charge of your, your program's institutional account or you know, an ATS group's institutional account, things like that. So I really think every, every consumer probably is coming at this with different needs. And because of that, it's hard to be all the things for all the people. And so sometimes you gotta stick with your own personal style and brand and that is okay too. And so not everyone needs to post long tutorials. I, I often will tell this to my trainees too. Again, your voice matters. Think about what's important to you. You don't have to try to be someone else. You know, Dr. Avi Cooper spending his amazing history of medicine, deep dives with physiology. That is awesome. But you don't have to be doing that to have a meaningful voice or have a meaningful experience. So Sometimes I worry that uh, the really amazingly well-researched tutorials can be intimidating for particularly a novice user. So I often will try to reassure people that that's okay. Again, as we see on the pyramid, there's multiple levels of engagement and you have to see what works for you, for your style, for your time availability. And there's so many different ways that we can use social media to improve medical education. As Dr. Gandotra said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm excited to see what's next out of your research group and uh, how MedEd evolves with social media. Yeah, particularly, I think we've seen um, a big shift as, as both of you alluded to, like during the course of the pandemic. Um, so how has, your, how has your own engagement with social media morphed over this time you you alluded to like the early days like trying to consume and I did the same I was just like reading everything crazy coming out and um overwhelming it was really overwhelming and I think that as we've kind of gone through the different phases so far things have shifted certainly for us in our clinical work and as well as I imagine in our in our virtual uh lives so how how are you transitioning at this stage that we're at now over a year into the pandemic and how you consume or, or interact with social media. It's funny, I think, you know, we sort of discussed how early on it was just, you know, so important, I think, to be consuming all that information. I'm in Alabama and so we were certainly not at the forefront of the pandemic, but we got quite busy. And so by virtue of just clinical work and other things taking over, I think, um, as well as the emotional drain of Twitter, I definitely lessened the amount of time I was spending on it. Um, I would say like after recruitment season in particular, just because there I was doing much more sort of directed work with it. But over, over time, I've gone back to kind of my comfort zone with it, you know, consuming new literature, new sort of ideas, but very much so in short uh, time periods. So 10, 20 minute time windows, either like Dr. Santos was saying, that's your elevator time. For me, it's my walking time because we're a large campus. Um, and so just, you know, being mindful of pathway hazards, uh, it can be a great way to use a time that's, you know, otherwise can seem like it's wasted time. Um, but I think certainly I do less of it now than I did early in the pandemic. I also do encourage trainees to 
to engage with Twitter. Many of them I think are reluctant and many are not on Twitter. And so often if I'm rounding clinically, um, I will refer to things that I've seen on Twitter, share content um, off Twitter with those trainees, of course, or show them off of my feed. Um, but I think that's one of the ways that I do tend to use it. I tend to share what I've seen and how I use it and how I think it can be very beneficial, both from a career standpoint, but also from an educational standpoint. I, I have a similar journey that early in the pandemic, we were all reading obsessively. I, def I definitely was because it was scary. Everything was uncertain. Things were not known. And similarly here in California, we weren't hit hard by that first wave. So we were reading to get prepared to see what are people seeing? What are people's experience? What should we do? What can I learn? So you're, you're reading to prepare. I felt like I was reading to prepare myself to answer questions from friends and family, to answer questions from my patients and to be prepared for our search early on. And I think as, as the pandemic's toll has, has gone longer and longer, clinician burnout is just, you know, the world, the world is, is a bit tired from 2020 and 2021, but frontline clinicians, particularly home critical care doctors, this has been an extraordinarily tough year. So I think paying attention to wellness and boundaries is important. I am trying, and it's really hard. It's a work in progress for me, honestly, to consider med Twitter a little bit of my, when is it my work time? And when is it my relaxing time? And making sure that it does not eat into my family time. So that's very hard. It's a work in progress because when at late at night, I'm seeing the feeds from my Australia and New Zealand critical care colleagues or you know, colleagues on the East Coast early in the morning. So it is a 24-7 news cycle and information cycle, and you're never going to, quote, finish it. You're never going to be completely up to date on the medical literature. You're never going to, to finish it. And so paying attention to your boundaries and your well-being uh, is really important, especially as we have to pace ourselves for this marathon of the pandemic. And we need to make sure that our cups are as replenished as possible while we're you know, staring down the barrel of potentially a fort search. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think that that, um, that mirrors some of my experience as well here in Pittsburgh and moving through different phases of, of close engagement versus arm's length um, relationship with social media. Sometimes we uh, like overdo it and then need to take a break and come back again with a fresh, fresh eyes. Um, and that's okay. And that's okay. It's always funny when my phone tells me how much time I've spent using it right at the end of the week, depending on if I'm a clinical on clinical service or not, or if the ICU has been busy or not. It, you can almost tell just from my number of hours that the phone tells me or what percentage of time I've been on. Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting way to kind of chart the course of time and, um, you know, in this virtual world that we found ourselves in over the past you know, year, almost year and a half will be soon um, just kind of reassessing. And so I think that takes me back to like this theme that I love that both of you raised of like our purpose um, with social media. So I think that that's a, a helpful way to like frame it again. So where are we at with our purpose in our training, in our careers? And that can help to, I think, better clarify how do we actually want to engage with this 
um, this instrument and it, it may, we may find more utility in some parts of it and, and less in others during different phases of our, of our work lives. I think that's a really helpful, helpful discussion. Um, thank you to both of you for sharing your um, experience as individuals on social media, as experts in social media and scientists looking at social media and educators. Um, we'll just close with one final question of what are you most looking forward to going into the sort of warmer months of 2021 um, for our listeners? For me, it's um, here in Pittsburgh, we're, we're seeing signs of spring, even though it's supposed to snow soon, <laughs> maybe later this week, but um, getting outside with, with our kids and starting to see people back outside again um, and, and getting our kids kind of out and back in nature. I would say I'm excited for the post-vaccine life of the country. I'm really hopeful that as our vaccine uptake gets higher and higher, uh, cautiously and slowly and joyfully, we can move back into seeing more friends where all family members have been vaccinated, et cetera. So I'm really looking forward to, to having more, returning to more social engagements once more and more people have been fully vaccinated. In-person social engagements. That's <laughs> Not right. just social That's media. Right. Not just social media engagements. Yeah, in-person conferences um, to be able to see people from all different phases of training and, and careers and friends from across the country, I think is just something I look forward to. I think so home for me is Toronto, Canada. So mm -hmm. I haven't been home and you know, over a year now. So I'm really hoping that um, things will look better there soon as well. And that perhaps I'll actually get to go home and see my family and friends. And then certainly in the meantime, being out and about, because uh, it's, it's beautiful here in Alabama right now. Um, and so at least being outside and, and being able to see friends and colleagues in the post-vaccine era, I think is just, is such a good thing for us right now after this hard year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully I get to lay eyes on the two of you, maybe next ATS. <laughs> hopefully we'll be back in person by then. Um, and in the meantime, we will, we will retweet each other. Um, so again, thank you both for, for taking the time and for contributing to the literature and to um, our listeners' understanding of different uh, ways, tips and tricks, and, and um, understanding uh, the development of utilizing social media in our in our environment in our work environment um, and thank you all to our listeners for attending to this week's episode of scholarly if you liked this episode please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts to listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly thanks again for listening and have a great day <laughs>